you know, as Christians, we have to understand and, and be real with where we are. That's what we have to see first, individually. And what where our mindset is and what we desire. Airing the Addisons. I think what God is really calling us back to, it's those individual personal revivals in our own lives where we're like, oh Lord, what have we done? We have minimized you. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. As the church, man, we should be on the forefront yes. of making disciples, of indoctrination and godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Airing the Addisons. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary and the guest host for today for Airing the Addisons, and it is good to be back with you. Today will be my last day as the guest host. We've been here Monday, Tuesday, and of course today, and then uh, tomorrow and Friday you'll have someone else with you. Uh, all my best to you. It's always good to be with you on the air. Uh, yesterday we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit. We looked at Acts chapter 2 and the relationship between the law in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We said that both the law and the Holy Spirit share a lot of things in common. In particular, we said that they reveal sin, they reveal the character of God, and they reveal the people of God in the world. We, we did a bit of a deeper dive, too, on the proper definitions of sin and categories for sin. And so today, I want to build just a bit on what we talked about yesterday, and, and even if you didn't listen in yesterday, it's no problem at all. This is a free, standing, isolated lesson on the Holy Spirit. I do want to talk just a bit more on the Holy Spirit. And I want to say, too, that the reason why I'm talking about the Holy Spirit primarily is because of being prayerful about what to, what to talk about, what to share on the airways. Uh, but in addition to that, I've spent the past few years writing a book on the Holy Spirit that came out just a few weeks ago called The Holy Spirit, an Introduction, and it is a book published by uh, Seedbed, and um, I think that you'll find it helpful. I was um, A lot of people ask me the question, um, why did you write this book? Why a book on the Holy Spirit? And there's a real specific answer to that question. Um, I was invited to preach at a church a number of years ago, and it was Pentecost Sunday or, and during the summer months. And so I went in to preach, and I, I prepared just and went through the standard procedure preparing a, a, a message about the Holy Spirit and doing you know an exegetical analysis and an inductive Bible study, just like a deep study uh, of Acts chapter two in the moment in Pentecost is recorded in Scripture, and um, and just uh, explained the relationship between Pentecost and the Old Testament relationship between Pentecost or the whole, the law in the Old Testament Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit, just what we covered yesterday on the show, just a, a deeply biblical, balanced, accessible uh, little study on on the Holy Spirit, and I had a a lot of interesting feedback after the message that I preached. A lot of people came up to me and said, you know, I've never heard this before, and uh, I want to go deeper in this. Can you recommend any reading for me? And I'm the last person that wants to, uh, you know, reinvent the wheel. Uh, um, you know, I've got seven kids at home, um, president of a seminary, and um, so I like to outsource things and be as resourceful as possible. And usually if someone has a theological question or a topic that they approach me with or a biblical question, I try to find something that's already written. Say, look, read this book or read this article. And so uh, that was my response. I said, you know, I, uh, I'd like to recommend reading to you, but let me do a little bit of research on uh, what the right book is 
to recommend with regard to reading, something that's that's deeply biblical, something that's balanced and accessible uh, in terms of a pneumatology or a study of the Holy Spirit. And so I started to kind of do a little digging there on Amazon and other places on the internet, and I just couldn't find the book that I was looking for. And, and don't get me wrong, there are good books out there on the Holy Spirit, but they tend to either fall in one of two camps. They either tend to be uh, very academic and theologically dense. And, and personally, I love those. You know, one of my favorite books on the Holy Spirit is a book by a guy named Thomas Oden. It's called Life in the Spirit. It's a third volume of a three-volume systematic theology. Uh, but it's it's hard for, you know, sort of like the untrained layperson uh, to, to, to read and to really engage with, because he's, he's pretty deep, Tom Oden. You know, it's a systematic theology for seminary students, really. And so that wasn't going to be the book that I was going to recommend to, like, the average person in the pew. Um, but a wonderful book, and there are many others too. And by the way, there have been other books that, has co- that have come out since, since then. Um, and so uh, that, that's the first category of book that I found. The second category tend to be a little bit sectarian, uh, meaning that traded a study of the Holy Spirit from a very specific um, Christian's perspective, a specific branch of the tree of Christendom's perspective, whether that be Pentecostal, Charismatic, uh, or something else, Reformed, and, and, and I wanted something that was a little bit more, and here's a fancy word, but it's an important word, ecumenical, something that was a little bit more broadly orthodox. C.S. Lewis wrote a book uh, in the um, 1900s called Mere Christianity, and I love the title of that book. It means kind of like Christianity, uh, and he talked about the things that all Christians everywhere have always believed. So it, what he talks about in that book, and really he, what he's doing is making a moral argument for the existence of God, but um, Roman Catholics would believe it, Protestants would believe it, Eastern Orthodox would believe it, and those are the primary three branches of, of the Christendom tree. Uh, but nonetheless, it's mere Christianity, the essential, something that's balanced, something that's not going to, um, that's going to, you know, upset or be contrary or heterodox with regard to some of those other traditions. And so it, the books I found that I was trying to recommend to people were either highly academic or uh, they were highly sectarian. And and it's, it's possible the book's still out there and I just couldn't find it. But I thought, man, I wonder, there's room, I think, in the market for a book like this. Just a standard, again, deeply biblically rooted, balanced, accessible, not real long, not highly academic, but um, has good research behind it that someone could use in their small group or read for their personal devotions. And so I just started drafting the manuscript, and after a number of years, uh, you know, it's out now. And so that's why I'm thinking a lot about the Holy Spirit, because the book was just released a few weeks ago, and I've been doing a lot of podcasts and discussions and sermons and lessons in various places on the topic. So it's kind of like low-hanging fruit for me at the moment. But nonetheless, I will say, too, that um, it's really helpful because um, we tend to not talk about the Holy Spirit quite enough, and there's something to be said there uh, about talking too much about the Holy Spirit. I think that we can... um, we can talk about the Holy Spirit too much, uh, but I don't want to explain why that is uh, right now. I want to explain it a little bit later, because that's a part of the content of the lesson I wanted to present uh, here this afternoon. And so um, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit as writing the profile, the image of God on the hearts of believers. So I want to take a little bit of a different angle now in discussing uh, the Holy Spirit. And I want to talk about um, one of the symbols that the Scriptures use to describe the Holy Spirit. So um, there are several symbols in the Bible that are used to describe the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure you know them. Most people know all but one. One tends to be forgotten at times, and then when I say it, they go, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. And so um, the primary symbol, and and by the way, the reason we look at the symbols of the Holy Spirit in Scripture 
is because they help us to understand who the Holy Spirit is and what He does, His function, His ministry. And, and they emphasize different aspects, different dynamics of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So they're helpful ways in to studying the Holy Spirit, the symbols are. So uh, the, the most common and what we'd call the preeminent, the top-level priority, biblical priority symbol for the Holy Spirit in Scripture, scripture is wind or breath. And that's the one I want to focus on today in our time together. Um, and so we're going to come back to this one. Wind or breath is, a, is the primary symbol for the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Uh, let, me, let me just touch on the other ones really quickly, and then we'll come back to wind, wind slash breath. Uh, the second most common symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is oil. And of course, uh, we see this uh, beginning with the Old Testament, with oil being an element used to anoint individuals, right? And so uh, Samuel anointed Saul as king, Samuel anointed David as king, and, and this was the mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just in the anointing, uh, but also we see it in uh, the building of the tabernacle as well. Um, now, of course, the, the anointing oil, oil symbolizing the Holy Spirit, became synonymous with or, or identified with the Messiah, uh, what we what we call the Christ, because of the Greek Christos in the New Testament. Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah, which just means anointed one, uh, which, and it, it came to be associated with the promise of the Davidic king, the one that they were anticipating, the one that God had chosen. So anointing in the Old Testament is the sign of one who was chosen to, a, to do a specific work, uh, chosen by God for a work of God, and he has a special endowment of the Holy Spirit with them to accomplish that work. That's how anointing works in the Old Testament. Um, now, we could talk about some of the points of comparison between oil and the Holy Spirit, but because of time, let me just touch on a, quick, a few quick. One uh, it is fuel, right? Oil is fuel for fire. In the same way, the Holy Spirit um, fuels us, or you could even use the language of ignites us, animates us, fuels our prayer, fuels our worship, fuels gifts, enables us uh, to do supernatural things for the advancement of the kingdom of God, always for the building up of the church. The first time the Holy Spirit is poured out on an individual in, uh, in the Bible is in the Old Testament, um, one who is building uh, the tabernacle, and uh, Bezalel is his name, and of course, he's gifted to build the tabernacle. They're build the church, right? So spiritual gifts are for building the church. So fuel, um, also healing. The Holy Spirit brings healing to our lives, to our relationships, healing to our relationship with God, first and foremost, and of course, to others. Um, but also the Holy Spirit is shiny, it's bright, uh, and we see this in Psalm 133, where, you know, anointing... Uh, it, ref it reflects light, oil reflects light, the same way that Moses' face was shiny and bright, reflecting the light of God's presence after sitting with him. It beautifies, right? Esther put oil on her face to beautify herself before going to the king. Um, and so uh, the Holy Spirit beautifies uh, the work of our hands, our imperfect work for the kingdom. He does, in fact, make it perfect. So oil and the Holy Spirit. Um, don't want to go too far there because of time. Another one, uh, uh, so so first we have invisible, or excuse me, we have breath and wind, and then we have oil. We also have fire, very common symbol, the fire in the burning bush, the fire uh, by night, pillar fire by night in the Old Testament as they were wandering in the wilderness, um, and of course um, the tongues of fire that rested on the heads of the, the disciples or those that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon in Acts chapter 2. Uh, the Holy Spirit's like fire in that he illuminates, he illuminates the Word of God, he illuminates sin, he fire purifies, fires fire, uh, it protects like a wall of fire around the people of God. It also comforts 
comforts us, right? The Holy Spirit is a comforter. Jesus calls him that. He comforts us. He takes away the sense of guilt and shame uh, through the, uh, like an assurance of salvation that our sin guilt has been lifted by the blood of Jesus. Um, so the Holy Spirit's a comforter, like fire warms our hearts. So um, so we have fire. We also have water. Water is a common spirit of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. Um, in the book of John, he talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, and he says, if, you'd known who I went, who, if, if you knew who I was, you would have asked me for water. I would have given you water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. And then in the next chapter, he says something very similar to the crowds, and then the narrator, John, says he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is water. Um, so the Holy Spirit is like water in that he nourishes, right? He washes and cleanses. Um, but lastly, the last symbol is the dove. That's the one that most people tend to overlook because it's not that prevalent in the Old Testament. Uh, we see it at Jesus' baptism. He comes up out of the water, and uh, the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove. And the Holy Spirit uh, is like a dove in that the dove is symbolic of innocence and new life. And this uh, relates back to the story of Noah and the ark, which we don't have time to touch upon here. But the Holy Spirit, of course, then communicates to us and imparts to us, imputes to us the innocence of Jesus uh, through our faith in him, and also brings new life, right? Everyone who's in Christ is a new creation, and the Holy Spirit generates life. So, that being said, there's a, a very brief overview, right, of the symbols of the Holy Spirit, and we could almost do a lesson on each one of those, and not almost, we could do a lesson on each one of those, but I want to focus on um, the Holy Spirit as wind, as breath, which is the preeminent symbol, the most important, the most prevalent, the most common, most frequent, whatever word you want to use there, uh, symbol representing the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Now, where's the evidence of this, that it's the number one? First is that both the Greek and Hebrew words for spirit— is the same word for breath and wind. So Old Testament, Hebrew, the word is ruach, ruach. Ruach means breath, it means spirit, and it also means wind. It means the same thing. New Testament, Greek, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, which means breath and spirit as well. And so the very title, the word, the container, the symbol, the sign used to refer to the Holy Spirit um, Every time he's mentioned is breath, wind, air, spirit. So it is then the preeminent, the number one, um, the number one thing that the spirit can be attributed to or compared to. Now we also see this in Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, um, where he says, Nicodemus says, "What do I need to do to see the kingdom of God?" He says, "You need to be born of water and of and of spirit." And then he says that the spirit, uh, like wind, blows where he wishes. So uh, more biblical evidence for the Holy Spirit being like wind and air, and then we're going to explore the points of comparison between the two. How are they similar, and why is it important for the Christian life? We'll touch on those items when we get back. Love is can't 
pull up to heaven asking God where my stuff is. Sitting down thinking, staring at the trees. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Matt Ayers, the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, also assistant professor of Old Testament at WBS, where we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. We're getting ready to celebrate our 50th anniversary here at Wesley Biblical Seminary, 50 years of training and developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And know, too, seminary is not just for clergy. It's not just for full-time pastors or missionaries. It is for that, but it's not just for that. We have all kinds of programs here at WBS that you would be interested in, that we have designed and engineered with the average Christian in mind, the average person in the pew. We have Wesley Institute through the Bible in nine months with seminary professors. We have courses that you can audit. I'm teaching a course in the Psalms here and upcoming in the fall for 15 weeks. You want to go deeper in your knowledge of the book of Psalms. We have courses uh, on a discipleship in the home. If you've ever had difficulty thinking about the best way to disciple your children or to strengthen your marriage and, and to make the home the little church, uh, take discipleship in the home here with us at Wesley Biblical Seminary. If you want to know about the ancient history of the, of, uh, of the Old Testament and the uh, cultural and historical contours that shape the context of ancient Israel, we have courses along those lines. So check us out at wbs.edu. We're talking about the Holy Spirit today. And we're talking about the symbols of the Holy Spirit, specifically wind. And I said that wind or air or breath is the primary symbol, the preeminent symbol, the most frequent symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And we see this in the word itself used for spirit. Old Testament Hebrew is ruach, New Testament Greek is pneuma. Uh, but beyond that, uh, we also see other places where the Holy Spirit is conceptualized as wind. Acts chapter 2, which we referred to a moment ago, also the Holy Spirit appearing as fire there, uh, it says that, the, that there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon believers. We also see this in Genesis chapter 1, where the wind of God or the Spirit of God hovered over the, the tohu wabohu, which is just a, a Hebrew phrase that means the... Um, the emptiness and the voidness, the, the depths that were before God called light into existence. We also say Jesus, of course, in John chapter 20, verses 19 and following, specifically verse 22, uh, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. We also see when God creates Adam, he breathes on him the breath of life. Um, and so um, we see the Holy Spirit as wind in many, many places and as breath throughout the Scriptures. The question is, then, in what ways is the Holy Spirit like wind or breath? Why is that an appropriate symbol for the Holy Spirit? We talked about how fire is like the Holy Spirit, illuminates, comforts, purifies, protects. We also talked about oil, beautifies, healing, shines, um, fuel, etc. A dove, innocence, new life. But what about wind and breath? In what way? And, and another important passage uh, that I want to make sure I, I, I touched on it briefly just before the commercial break. But John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says very plainly that the Holy Spirit is the breath of God, the wind of God, being baptized by the Spirit. So what are then the points of comparison between the Holy Spirit and wind? Well, there's a few. There's a few points of comparison between them. The first point of comparison that we can touch on, and this is the primary one between wind and the Holy Spirit, is that both give life, specifically breath, more than wind. Think about breath. You can't live without breath. Hold your breath. Go under that water. 
and you hold it too long, you'll black out, you'll pass out, and it is scary. If you ever fallen when you were a kid or maybe even an adult on your back or on your chest hard, you get the wind knocked out of you, and you can't breathe, and it, it causes a panic because wind is or breath is essential for life. Breath is an invigorating, invisible, life-giving force, and the Holy Spirit is also a life-giving force. So the Holy Spirit not only enlivens our physical bodies, as we see in the Genesis account, but more than this, the Holy Spirit enlivens, brings our spirit to life. The Holy Spirit sustains our lives in Jesus. It is the breath of God that sustains our indwelling with Christ and Christ's indwelling in us. The Holy Spirit brings to life the new creation. Paul oftentimes talks about how without the Holy Spirit, without being reconciled to God on the basis of Jesus' as atoning work and the divine personal presence of God restored to us in the Holy Spirit, we are merely dead to sin and is the power of the fallen condition that animates our members. And we need to be resuscitated. We need to be spiritually brought to life. This is what Jesus means when he says we have to be born again. And the Holy Spirit is the one who births us. He generates life inside of our being, namely a spiritual life. Now, keep in mind, it's not limited to spiritual life. We look forward to a future resurrection. Just as Jesus was resurrected by the Holy Spirit, says Romans chapter 1, by the power of the Spirit of holiness, Jesus was resurrected in his physical body. Likewise, the followers of Jesus will also be resurrected um, for eternal life. And so um, right now, while we await the consummation of the kingdom and Jesus' final establishment of his rule over the new heavens and new earth, the Holy Spirit brings new life to our spiritual, the spiritual aspect of who we are, invigorates that life. But in the future, he will also invigorate our new bodies. This is what we're talking about here, which we've talked about before, is the doctrine of regeneration, being born again. It's another way of thinking about the Holy Spirit engendering life in us, in the sense that when we are dead in sin, to use Paul's language, the only desires and passions that are aroused within us, they come out of our fallen sinful condition, and they come out of a posture of rebellion against God. But when the Holy Spirit is alive in us, he engenders or enlivens not unholy passions that are driven by a sinful condition, but he engenders and enlivens and generates in us holy, life-giving passions and desires out of the holiness and the holy heart and mind of God. Regeneration, being born again, where our wills, our will is actually conformed to the will of God, where we can obey him and willfully obey him, not obey him in a resistant way. There's the famous story of a a father and his son in church, and the boy kept standing up on the bench, and he says, son, sit down, and then you get a little fidgety for a while, and he'd stand up on the pew again, and he'd say, son, you got to sit down, and he gets a little irritated at his daddy, and he sits back down, he lacks patience again and stands back up, and daddy says, boy, you got to sit down. I don't want to have to tell you again. And he's upset. Boy sits down, crosses his arms, looks a little angry. And then after a few moments pass, he whispers to his daddy, he says, Daddy, you see I'm sitting down, right? He says, I see you're sitting down. He says, well, in my heart, I'm standing up. 
right? And that's not the life that God intends for us, obedience, but out of resistance, a posture of rebellion. The Holy Spirit allows our will to align with the will of the Father, and we joyfully obey. This is a part of what being a regenerated, born-again Christian is, and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that happen. So just like breath is life-giving and sustains life and generates life, likewise, the Holy Spirit sustains and generates life. He is a life-giving force, and he sustains our new life as a new creation, as Jesus' people, in Jesus. One of the ways that he does this, sustaining our life in Christ, is he cultivates a hunger and desire for being in the means of grace. You know, you'll notice that after a lot of people, well, it should be every person that's ever become a Christian, all of a sudden has a hunger for the Word of God has a hunger for worship, has a hunger for prayer, has a hunger for Christian fellowship, has a hunger for the Eucharist, has a hunger for holy things. Well, that work, that hunger is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit cultivating those desires in you so as to sustain you in a healthy way in Jesus. When I was a missionary in Haiti, I was a translator for a doctor once, and he would always ask his patients, are you hungry? It was an American doctor, didn't speak Creole, right? And so I was pulled in as a translator because I speak Creole. And so eventually I asked, I said, why do you ask everybody if they're hungry? I know it's a poor country, but not everybody's starving to death. He says, I ask everybody because they're hungry, because one of the number one signs that someone is sick or not healthy is that they're not hungry. Someone who's hungry is healthy. And the Holy Spirit, in order to sustain and generate our life in Jesus, he puts in us holy hungers, hungers for the Word of God. So, um, like breath, the Holy Spirit is life-giving. But there's another point of comparison between the Holy Spirit and, and wind, let's say. And uh, Jesus points this out to Nicodemus. He says, the wind blows where he wishes. The Holy Spirit, like the wind, does what he wills. And what he means by this is that the Holy Spirit is, like wind, unpredictable. You can't control it. You can't predict it. Now, this is interesting. We can ask the question, in what way is the Holy Spirit unpredictable? Um, Another way into thinking about the same idea is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. He does things in ways that we wouldn't do them. The mind of God is mysterious to humanity. Now, of course, we have special revelation, we have the scriptures, we have doctrines and creeds, and uh, the, the behavior of God, the act of God is always going to be in conformity to the scripture and his, his ethics, his morality, but he still surprises us. The Holy Spirit, like wind, can surprise us. Now, we can think of many examples of things like this. So let's say, uh, let's look, take Abraham and Sarah, for example. God need, is going to redeem the world, and his master plan is to grow a great big family, and he's going to turn that family into the nation. Well, if you're a human, you go, all right, who are we going to grow a great big family out of? You're going to pick a young, fertile couple. But that's not what he does. He's unpredictable. He picks this couple that is past the age of childbearing and infertile. They're sterile on top of it. Take uh, the choice of David as the king. Saul's the perfect king, right? He's tall. He's rich. He's centrally located from the tribe of Benjamin. He's strong. He's handsome. But that's not the, that's the king that the people wanted. It's not the king that God necessarily, who's giving them what they wanted. And when it came time for him to pick his king, he said, go to the house of Jesse. And Samuel, he went and saw all the boys and said, oh, we got a king among these. And he said, maybe this one. And God said, not that one. It's not the one that you think it would be. 
and finally gets to the last seventh son, and God says, it's none of these. It's not these. He says, there's one more. There's an eighth that you wouldn't even think of as being an eligible son. That's the one I want. God is unpredictable. Here's here's another great example. What good could come from Nazareth? So they say about Jesus, where is this man from? Nazareth. What in the world? What good could come from Nazareth? That, who's, who's God going to pick to be his, his evangelist, his apostle to the Gentiles? How about the zealous Jewish guy named Saul of Tarsus, the guy who can't stand Gentiles? That's what I mean when say, say God is unpredictable. He's going to build a kingdom. He's going to establish a new covenant. He's going to take on flesh. And you know who he's going to choose? He's going to choose all the religious people. No, he chooses 12 guys, a bunch of which are fishermen. And some of them are tax collectors. Those are the ones he picks and chooses. God, the Holy Spirit, is unpredictable. Now, what does this mean for you and I? It means that the Holy Spirit could have a plan for you that you would never imagine because he's like wind, he blows where he wishes, and he does what he wants. So when you're trying to determine what God's will is for your life, consult the scriptures, scour the scriptures, dig deep into the scriptures, but also remember that it may, the thing that he may be asking you to do, asking you to do, may not be the predictable thing. He's unpredictable like wind. I would never guess that I would be a mission would have been a missionary in Haiti or the president of a seminary. What in the world? We don't think God's thoughts. The other thing that you would never guess, if God says, hey, I want you to go and talk to this person about the gospel, you're thinking, there's no way. That's the last person in the world who would receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Well, listen, the Holy Spirit blows where he wishes. His, he knows things that we don't know. He is un predictable. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Aslan, he is a wild, untamable lion. So like the Holy Spirit, wind, wind like uh, the Holy Spirit, like wind, blows where he wishes, unpredictable. Okay, let's move on then into a couple more points of comparison between wind and the Holy Spirit. And this is a big one, and we're going to dwell on this for just a little bit. Wind and the Holy Spirit are both invisible. They're invisible. Now, there's a number of things I need to say about this. The first thing comes back, it, it, it pulls back into the conversation a comment that I made early on in this broadcast with regard to being careful not to focus too much or talk too much about the Holy Spirit. What did I mean by that? Well, here's what I meant by that. Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the incarnate deity. Remember when Timothy says to Jesus, not Timothy, Thomas, he says, Thomas says to Jesus, when will you show us the Father? He says, Thomas, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word word took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us. John, the letter of 1 John in the first chapter, we write to you to tell you about the God that we have seen that has took on flesh that we saw with our eyes and touched with our hands. Revelation, also written by John, chapter 1 in the salutation, the first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revealer. Hebrews chapter 1. Oh, this is such a great one. Let me pull it up real quick real quick here uh, in my Bible. Hebrews chapter 1. Not long, he says, long ago, at many ways, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the apostles, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed to be heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is the visible God, the incarnate God. He is the one we are to focus on. Now, we're going to talk more about this when we come back from our break. Welcome back, everybody. This is our last little run together for today. And we're talking about the Holy Spirit and the points of comparison between the Holy Spirit and wind. We've said so far that the Holy Spirit, like breath, is a life-giving force. We said that the Holy Spirit, like wind, is unpredictable. And where we left off, as we said, the Holy Spirit, like wind, is invisible. And I was saying that we have to be careful not to talk too much about the Holy Spirit or put too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit because Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, is the incarnate deity. Now, let me make something really clear. When I say it's important that we don't talk about the Holy Spirit too much, I need to be really careful with that because I am not suggesting by any way, shape, or form that the Holy Spirit is of lesser deity or subordinate to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit as the church has given us through the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is co-eternal, co-equal, and indivisibly united with the Father and the Son, and completely deserving of our worship, glory, and praise. And we can invoke his name in prayer. We can worship him in worship. So when I say it's important that we don't talk about him too much, I'm not saying that he's of a lesser deity or anything like that. He is fully God, third person, of the Holy Trinity. What I'm saying is that the way that God has revealed himself, the preeminent form of special revelation in the world is Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit's work is predicated on the work of Jesus. It's after Jesus finishes his work of death, burial, and resurrection, and of course, ascension, that he sends us the Spirit. Now, again, I want to clarify something else here. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is inactive or dormant prior to Pentecost. No, we believe in the unity of God, which means the every every one of the three persons of the Trinity are involved in one way or another in every act that God performs. So the Holy Spirit is very active in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is active in the life of Jesus. But the way that the God that God relates to his church with regard to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is limited to the time Pentecost and forward. So, um, and these are important theological qualifications. So what I'm saying is the Holy Spirit 
He inspires our view of Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus. He's, he's what we call self-effacing. He wants to be in the background, and his desire is for Jesus to be in the foreground. And as he pushes Jesus to the foreground, Jesus directs our attention to the Father and our Father to the Son through the Spirit. And from the Spirit to the Father, from the Father <laughs> to the Father, from the Son through the Spirit. And so we see here that when we focus too much on the Holy Spirit at the detriment of not focusing enough on Jesus, we are out of step with the Spirit himself. Let me give an illustration. Not an illustration. Let me give you a fact. In the story of of the road to Emmaus, there's two men walking on a road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus, in his glorified form, appears alongside of them. And he asks them what they're talking about. They don't know it's him. And it says that Jesus then explained to them the scriptures, beginning with Moses, how they all, all the scriptures testify to the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Bible is Christocentric. The Bible, the central character in the Bible is Jesus, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the God-man, fully God, fully man. That's what the scripture, or that is who the scripture is all about. And then 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, that the Holy Scriptures are God-breathed, meaning that the Holy Spirit is a key actor in the inspiration of the writing of Scriptures. So if the book, the Bible, is all about Jesus, and the author is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is essentially concerned with talking about Jesus, not about himself. And so any church or any group or any individual that has their attention more fixed on the Holy Spirit than they do Jesus is not being inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. Now, the Holy Spirit does inspire talk about the Holy Spirit, about himself, but always in a way that points back to Jesus. He's always pointing to Jesus. Jesus is like the portrait of God, the picture of God, and even that's a little lacking. You know, all analogies have their their deficiencies, but because he is God, he's not just a portrait of God, he is God. But let's say he makes God visible, He makes God real to us in the world in an incarnate form, and the Holy Spirit is the spotlight on the portrait, right? We don't look at the spotlight, we look at the portrait. So, the Holy Spirit is invisible. Jesus isn't invisible. Now, he's invisible right now while we await his return, but he became incarnate. He walked amongst us, and we will walk with him in the future uh, when we have eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. So the Holy Spirit is invisible. That's one aspect of this. There's another aspect to the invisibility of the Holy Spirit I think is absolutely essential, and I think it's important that we end on this very important, probably the most important note, at least in my mind, for today. And that is this. The invisibility of the Holy Spirit means that we cannot always detect when, where, and how He is at work. That we can't simply depend upon our feelings or our sensories, right? on our ability to sense his presence. We cannot make our feelings the primary determining factor for determining whether or not the Holy Spirit's with us. The difference between a mature Christian and an immature Christian, there are many differences, but here's one big key one, is that the mature Christian obeys God whether he senses God's presence or not. The immature Christian only obeys God in response to an experience. Too many Christians today go into their worship service looking for an experience. 
they're more concerned with having a sensory experience oftentimes than they are with simply obeying God. The problem with that is you stop obeying when the experience goes away. I have no problem with uh, an experiential worship service, none at all. I have no problem with raising your hands. Heck, dance in the aisle if you want to. Shake a tambourine. It doesn't matter. Any difference to me. What matters to me is when you walk out that door, are you going to obey the commands of God or not? And if you're not, quit, quit shaking the symbol, please. Obedience. Steady obedience. The Holy Spirit is invisible, which means that he can be at work, and it's possible that we don't see it or sense it. It's possible, not just possible, it is certain Jesus promised, I will be with you always. What he didn't say is, I'll be with you always. He's talking about through the Holy Spirit, right? I will be with you always, and you'll always be able to feel it. That's not what he says. He says, I will be with you always. And so are we going to believe in the scriptures whether our feeling reality aligns with that scripture or not? The feeling reality has nothing to do with it. The promise is everything. And so you or me, one, we can feel, I, we can feel like God has abandoned us or he is not with us or we don't sense his presence. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is not there and not working. This is absolutely essential when it comes to effective ministry. It being in a calling where we train pastors, I make it a regular mantra, at least I try to, to remind pastors, don't judge success and ministry by feeling or even by numbers or statistics. Your success is determined by one factor and one factor alone, and it's your obedience. That's not to say that there won't be fruit that's detectable. Certainly there'll be fruit. Jesus teaches that there'll be fruit, and even talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the, li- the, life, the lives of believers. That's certainly the case. But it could be that God is asking us to do something in ministry where we don't sense, feel, see, or heal, hear God's presence at all, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's not at work. I'll tell you what, I preach a lot, right? And sometimes I go to these venues, and I preach, and that congregation is living and alive and hooting and hollering, and I'm not even that dynamic of a preacher. And they're amening, they're responsive, and you can sense the Spirit of God in the room. And there are other times where you go and preach, and the room is just kind of frozen. And, and yes, yeah, sure, okay, there's a possibility—it may be that maybe the sermon wasn't that good, or that something's not right, or maybe you're, there, there's a distraction because the mic's turned down. There's all these other possibilities— But the bottom line is you don't preach because you're sensing God's Spirit, and you don't preach because of the reaction you get out of people. You preach because God told you to preach. You go and make disciples. And so I think this is a key, key thing in remembering that the Holy Spirit is not always sensible because He is invisible. I have a friend uh, whose father was a witch doctor. This is in Haiti, a Haitian friend of mine. And uh, this missionary would come to his house all the time, uh, almost daily, to share the gospel with his dad. And his dad was doing this on purpose because uh, he had no, the witch doctor had no intention of becoming a Christian at all. Uh, but he figured, hey, the more time he spends here in me, with me in my house, with me wasting his time, the less time he's out there in the neighborhood influencing the people that I'm making my money off of, that they're coming to me for services, Right. And so, yeah, sure, come, missionary. And Jesus says, be careful about casting, you know, uh, pearls to swine. Not everybody's ready to hear the gospel. Um, So in any case, but in this case, the missionary just kept coming, and he kept talking about the gospel to this witch doctor. Well, what neither of them knew is that my friend, this witch doctor's son, who was a young boy, 
could overhear the conversation in the next room. And that missionary could have thought that he had never met that boy, that I don't see the Holy Spirit working, I don't see any fruit, I don't sense the Holy Spirit working, there's not a single amen, this guy seems to be wasting my time. What he doesn't know is that there's an ear around the other side who's listening. The Holy Spirit can be at work, and it's possible that we don't always detect it. What is absolutely essential is obedience. Now, there's an important aspect that comes into play here, and that's love. We're commanded to love. (laughs) You're saying, well, if we can't feel Him, isn't love a feeling? And that's my point. Love is not merely a feeling. It can translate into feelings, but love is steadfast commitment. That's what love is. Now, it's, it's, it's more than that, but ultimately where the well-being of the beloved is the number one priority. That's what love is, self-givingness. And so we have to be careful. We need to go from being immature Christians. I say we, me included, you know, I'm not, I'm not shaking my finger at anybody here. From limiting our obedience to times when it feels good and we sense God's presence to all times, whether we sense his presence or not. There's a great story in Scripture, John the Baptist, um, that I think illustrates this well. John the Baptist was Jesus' number one fan when, he was, when his ministry was doing well, when John's ministry was doing well. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, uh, John has a lot of great things to say about Jesus. You know, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me is greater than me. And then the Pharisees came and said, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not Messiah, but I know who the Messiah is, and I'm not worthy to even untie his shoes. And he goes on and on about how wonderful and how great Jesus is. This is the guy that you've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And remember, they're cousins. They probably grew up together, they, and John probably caught on to this. Now, Jesus' brothers didn't catch on to this for whatever reason, but John, you know, the whole um, miraculous event surrounding even his birth, not an immaculate conception, but a miraculous conception nonetheless. So John had some insight to who Jesus was. Jesus is number one fan, his cheerleader. He's the one, don't pay, and even says to his disciples, his disciples say, Jesus is baptizing more people than you are. He says, look, I've got to decrease. He's got to increase. So Jesus or John seems pretty uh, impeccable in his track record with regard to being Jesus, an enthusiastic Jesus follower, until he ends up in prison. And just a few chapters later, he gets put in prison because of something political he said. You know, he said Herod shouldn't be married to that woman, and he got locked up for it. And he calls his disciples, says, hey, I need you to go ask Jesus a question while he's in prison, right? I'm sending you to Jesus. He's out doing his ministry. Ask him this. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah, or are we supposed to wait for someone else? Notice how John's tone changed all of a sudden. He goes from exuberant, champion, cheerleader, Jesus follower, shaking the tambourine, dancing in the aisle, playing his Christian music on his playlist on his iPod, iPod, on his iPhone, as loud as possible, windows down so all his neighbors can hear how great and how lovely of a saint he is, until circumstances in life aren't as favorable, and he doesn't feel as good anymore, and now he begins to doubt. I don't mean to speak disparagingly about John. Hey, Jesus said, uh, you know, John's the least among the greats of the kingdom of God, and that's because Jesus is saying that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, so there's something new and better here. You know, Jesus loved John. Jesus sent a message back to John. He said, tell John this, the lame walk, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. 
and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who, not, who does not fall away because of me. And so John's disciples take that message back to John. And he says, John, this is what he said. And they cite back, you know, the lame walk, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, so on and so forth. Well, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. And the next verse is, and the prisoners will be set free, and Jesus doesn't quote it. And John thinks that that's going to be said, but it's not. What Jesus is sending John a secret message, he's saying, John, I'm not going to free you from prison. Are you going to be faithful to me or not? And that's my question to you today. As we depart, it's been great to be with you. Are you going to be faithful to Jesus no matter what your circumstances, whether you see that invisible Holy Spirit or not? Because he is invisible. Don't let the devil trick you into thinking because you can't see him, fear, feel him, or hear him, or have any sense of him whatsoever that he's abandoned you or forsaken you. Go by faith, not by feelings. It's been a delight to be with you. Check us out at wbs.edu. Wesley Biblical Seminary. Seminary is not just for your pastor, folks. Come and learn. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.